Good morning. Good morning, Redeeming Grace Church. I'll move here to the middle, start about that so folks in the lobby can see me. The ushers will go ahead and compel folks to come on in from the lobby. That would be great. Good morning. Welcome. For those who are visiting here with us, uh, my name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here. We are grateful that you would join with us, especially on Mother's Day. And for those moms who are visiting, uh, especially a happy Mother's Day to you, too. And for those seniors who have actually no longer seniors, is there um, just really quickly, nothing to do with Mother's Day, although I'm sure moms are grateful their kids are finally finished college. Are there any college graduates who just graduated yesterday in with us today? Anybody graduate today? Wonderful. We have Katie Payne. Excellent. Well, congratulations. And to all the other folks out in the lobby and anybody else who graduated, we're, we want to celebrate with you. Um, moms at least are grateful that they're no longer paying for tuition right now, although they're glad to have. Um, turn your Bibles to um, Samuel 29, First Samuel 29. We're not going to do a, a Mother's Day message, however... Um, all passages in the Bible apply to moms as well as dads, and I think that um, you will find encouragement, as I found encouragement, from God's Word uh, to you today as well. I want to just mention something about the video that you saw about the Piedmont Women's Center. One of the reasons we, we love the work that they're doing is they're seeking to honor God. They're, they're seeking to um, care for people who are in need in crisis pregnancies. But the other cool thing is um, they're, they're trying to care for those who, um, mothers who had abortions as well and experience um, guilt and condemnation and they have abortion recovery services. And I think that's a, a very critical, important part to care for women like that too. We mentioned that, but I want to just highlight how critical that is, is that the church and that places that are extensions of the church should be a place of grace and mercy for all people who have, no matter what our past is, what we've done or what we've experienced. And so if you find yourself there, uh, we wanted to just extend grace and mercy of the Lord to you and, and know that God um, counts all of us and all of what we've done, all of those things against Christ. And we all have freedom in Christ and together we're all needy people. And um, you're welcome here. So I wanted to just share that with you this morning. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 29, verses 1 through 11. 1 Samuel 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands... And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who's been with me now for days and years since he deserted to me? I found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place where you have signed to him. He should not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? 
would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you'd march out with me and in and out with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, but that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of the Lord, your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all of your passages in Scripture, Lord, all of the accounts in Scripture that apply to our hearts, that reveal who you are, Lord, and our need for you, that tell of your great grace and your mercy. God, I pray for each and every one here that we would see the mercy that you extended to David, Lord, and that, that, Lord, we would come to you to receive your mercy this morning. Father, would you give me grace as I speak And would you give grace to all those who hear to to hear from you? Would you open up our ears and our hearts and our minds to you, Lord? May we receive from you and respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I first met my wife, like most people when they meet their, or met their spouse for the first time, I was attracted to her for her looks. Uh, It wasn't some deep, noble thing. I was attracted to her for looks. But later, her personality won me over after multiple interactions in the grocery store. I can explain that story later sometime. Um, And on Flag Day, 26 years ago, we had our first date. And I can't believe how how the time has passed so fast and has passed by. And, And over the years, one of the things that I've experienced that, you know, when we had a, a new love, it was, it was full of passion and, and there was uh, excitement to it. But one of the things that happens over the years in, in a godly way is that as you get to know your spouse, I've gotten to know Julie, one of the things that's happened is my love for her has deepened, it's matured, it's become more sustainable, sustaining, and it's actually become stronger. Um, you know, passion might be one cord of a rope, but Boy, when you see um, your spouse's character and, and her love and, and her mercy, it, it deepens your affection, your love. And, and Julie has demonstrated her character over the years. And, you know, although never, never saying, hey, by the way, Matt, I'm demonstrating my character to you right now, um, that would be weird. It would be strange. You know, whenever I have not deserved mercy from her, which is much of the time, and she shows mercy, she's not saying, hey, Matt, when you were a jerk just now, or when you got yourself in trouble, and I kind of I intervened for you with that person and just kind of stepped in graciously, you know, I was extending mercy to you, just so you know. She doesn't come in and say, hey, by the way, right now you're being a jerk, I'm going to be merciful to you. Now, 
Now, sometimes she mercifully tells me when I'm being a jerk, but, but most of the time, most of the time, I experience her character through her actions and the way she treats me and how she demonstrates it. And, and so over the 26 years since I've, I've been with her, she has demonstrated her character, her integrity, her, her love for me, and her mercy. And she's also demonstrated that to people around me, and it increases my affection for her. You know, in, in the Bible, God, God shows us and demonstrates his character to us. When you first become a Christian, maybe have this initial excitement, and, and you think, whoa, it's just so great to be a Christian. Jesus has set me free and delivered me from all my sins, and that's wonderful, and that's true, and that's good. But then, if you begin to read the Bible and see who God is and see his demonstrated character and nature over the years, over the thousands of years that are recorded in his word, you can see God's demonstrated character, his, his nature, and, and the effect that it can, will have on you. And maybe you haven't yet seen those things that's why we preach through books of the Bible like this, so that you can see God's demonstrated character, his nature, and the effect that it has on you is that it's meant to deepen your love and, and grow stronger and more mature. And so in, in today's passage, really, what, what we see here, it's not God saying, hey, by the way, I'm being merciful. When, when David was being a jerk, when, when David was doing things he shouldn't have been, hey, by the way, I'm going to tell you I was being merciful here. No, God demonstrates that all throughout the Bible. And so when we have accounts like this, they reveal to us God's character, his nature. That's why they're written down in the Bible. The, the, the biblical authors always have an intent and a purpose in why they're writing. And we can especially see that in the book of Samuel. He begins off the, at the very start with Hannah's prayer. In a few weeks, we're going to we're going to focus on that as we end the book of Samuel and reflect back on that. But God is a God of mercy who, who guards the feet of his faithful ones even when they're not faithful. And so what we see in, in this passage is we see some things. We see First, we see David being self-sufficient, right? David, David he, is, he is trusted in his own ability. He's trusted in his own strength. He has gone to the Philistines, and he's even following with them going to war potentially against the people of Israel. But something bigger that we see that's, that's more important, more critical for us to see, and I think that the author is just demonstrating that through God's character, is that we see God's mercy. God's mercy. And, and so I, I think the, the two themes that we see, the main idea that we see in this in this passage, it's that self-sufficiency. David's the example of that here. He's not always a good example. Self-sufficiency, it leads to trouble. And David's in trouble here at the beginning of the passage. But here's what trumps. Here's what trumps David's self-sufficiency. Here's what trumps the trouble that David has gotten into. It is God's undeserved mercy. And God does that in a surprising way. He brings Mercy in the midst of the fact that David's in a royal mess. He, he's in a mess. We saw earlier, um, right after he had trusted in God in chapter 26, it's this kind of this highlight for him. He trusts in God. He goes into the middle of the camp. He doesn't kill Saul, and he says, you know what? God will, God will uphold me. He's going to guard me. He is faithful. I trust in him. And then the very next chapter, in chapter 27, we see what happens to a lot of us at times, right after these wonderful 
successes and trusting in God, doubt and fear and unbelief creep in and we faint. I don't mean physically faint, but faint in our faith. And so David in chapter 27, he experiences what Spurgeon used to call a fainting fit. And he, he has a fainting fit and he says, um, he said to himself, in chapter 27, open to this foreboding quote, we have it for you. It says, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. What's going on? David is, is fearful that fear, lack of looking to God and trusting in God, it leads to self-sufficiency. He says in his own heart, here's what I'm going to do. There's nothing better that I should escape the land of Philistines. And you know what? Maybe Saul will despair of seeking me along the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. And so he does, and he goes, and he does that, and, and he kind of takes matters into his own hands. And it kind of is reminiscent of some other people in the Bible, like Abraham, maybe, who was promised a son and took matters into his own hands, and it got him into trouble. David fainted, if you will, in his, in his trust in God in the face of Saul's unrelenting pursuit, and he gave in to fear, and it resulted, like it does for a lot of us, in self-sufficiency, and that self-sufficiency, it leads to trouble, and that's the first idea that we're going to explore from this passage. You see, David, he's, he's been living in the Philistines in the city of Ziklag under the protection of Achish, and Achish is one of the five lords of the Philistines. And David here, he's trying to figure out how to provide for his men, and he decided in, a, in prior chapters that, you know what, um, I've got to figure out how I'm going to protect myself and care for myself. And we saw a chapter that was basically godless. The author was drawing attention to the fact that David wasn't trusting in God, looking to God. He was trying to figure things out on his own, being self-sufficient. And so he, he, he decides, you know what, I'm going to go in the desert. I'm going to be a pirate. I mean, he didn't use those words. But he, he was a pirate in the desert. He, he goes and he decides that he's going to attack all these settlements around the desert. And he's going to kill everyone, man, woman, irregardless. Because he doesn't want to be found out. He does it for the wrong motives. He's trusting in his own ability and the self-sufficiency leads him into trouble. And so he's got to protect his reputation with Achish. So he lies about who he's attacking. And he says he was attacking the Israelites. And, and so he not only is dishonoring God, he's lying to Achish. He's... He's gotten himself into a royal mess. I know that David here, we, we see he's, he's living somewhat of a double life. He's living a life of deceit, and that's, that's often where self-sufficiency gets you. It, it gets you trying to appease people and, and make either people like you or, or make things work out on your own, and so you're trying to figure things out. And, and, and David, he's living a life of deceit. I was thinking about that. Isn't what, that's what we're tempted to do in our self-sufficiency. That's what I'm tempted to do in my self-sufficiency too. Um, to, to live a double life in the midst of the world. You know, tempted to, to act out of, out of fear and then self-sufficiency and then trust in our own way and, and try to live and act as if the opinion of the world matters. Do you ever find yourself there? You know, that's, that's what self-sufficiency leads to. It leads to you fearing what people think about you and trying to lie and deceive to get people to like you. And that's kind of what David's doing with Achish here. We're self-sufficient. We're, we're tempted to appease the world to make things go better. We're tempted to maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're tempted to trust in your savings or your finances or the stock market. And so you're watching it religiously. And, and so you're hoarding and becoming miserly because you've lost sight of who God is and you feared and become self-sufficient and it's led you into trouble. 
Or maybe you're tempted to trust in the career and you compromise your integrity in the workplace to try to fit in where you really shouldn't. Or maybe we think that our security lies in, in people liking us in, at school or in the workplace, and so you, you try to blend in and fit in and maybe even do the things that they do because otherwise they'll think we're weird or ostracize us and things won't go well at school or at work, or at least so we think, right? And, 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 it, and some of those things, they stem from often fear, lack of trusting in God, but then the self-sufficient patterns that we get into and they lead us to, to, be, to, to all kinds of problems. Maybe some lack faith in God and, and think that security lies in approval or pleasure. And you become drunk with worldly pleasures of life and try to make sure you, you're finding joy and life and in some sense of meaning on your own apart from God. And that self-sufficiency always leads to trouble. Back in chapter 28, the author of 1 Samuel, he sets up this scene where the Philistines are headed out to, the, to war with the armies of Israel. We, the background is important here. The author is jumping back and forth in time between chapter 27 and chapter 28 and chapter 29. So in chapter 28, he sets this scene up and he shows us that the Philistines are going out to war. And then David comes before Achish and Achish says, understand David, by the way, we're all going to war, but understand that you're going to go out with me and my men you and your men are going to go out together. And then David says something that's shocking. This self-sufficiency, it leads him to say stupid things. And he says, very well, I'll show you what I can do. You ever been in a place where you've been like, sure, I'll show you. I'll show you what I can do. And, and, and it, it leads to serious trouble here for David. And then the author immediately left us hanging. And he goes to the story of Saul and how Saul was tempted in the same way as David, actually, self-sufficiently looking for ways out. He wasn't trusting in God at all, and he went to try to find the way out through talking to a, a medium, a witch, in indoor. And so the author is going back and forth, but he's showing us some similar things here for both David and Saul, and now David again. He's showing this, this fear, self-sufficiency, it leads, leads to trouble, and now the scene shifts back again to a few days before Saul when he went to see the medium and it shows where David is. It's kind of like one of those TV shows that it takes you through one character and then it rewinds and takes you through the life of another character. That's, that's what the author here is doing for us. And now it's shifting back to where David and his 600 men, they've marched the 20 miles up from Ziklag up to Gath where, where Achish was and then they marched with him another 30 miles up to Aphek was a staging area um, where all of the troops of the Philistines were amassing near the Philistine border. I can't imagine in that 50-mile march, which, by the way, takes a while with troops on foot, I can't imagine what must have been going through the minds of David and his men. Can you imagine? You're thinking, okay, wait a minute, we're marching up to go fight against our very own people, our, our brothers, our fellow Israelites. You know, and you, and you wonder, and we're left hanging. We're not given answers here. We're, we're left hanging. You know, were they really planning on doing this? Were they really planning on going through with these things and fighting their own countrymen? You know, people have been divided in this passage over a couple thousand years. Some think, well, David, no, he really, really meant to, to fool them all and fight against the Philistines. And a lot of people think, well, no, he really didn't. He meant to fight 
with the Philistines. And it's just not clear. What we're left with is just the raw facts that David had agreed. He agreed to have his men join with the Philistines and fight against Israel. And there's, there's no indications otherwise. The author is intentionally silent. I think he's showing David's failure on purpose, David's self-sufficiency. The Bible will have no other heroes other than God. There's no indications that David was going to do otherwise. He might have been so angry with Saul that he really planned to go to battle against him. You know, but if so, he was risking his kingdom. Think about it. No self-respecting Israelite would ever accept David again if they find out that David is going to war against the Philistines. Who in the right mind would say, yeah, that's the king I want, the king who's just fought against our brothers. Yeah, that's... David was risking his kingdom here. Okay, on the other hand, maybe he did mean to turn on the Philistines, but even if he meant to do that, he was still in trouble because he and his men, they would be greatly outnumbered and surrounded by the Philistines. David's self-sufficiency was putting him right in harm's way. He was the one who, after all, had ingratiated himself with the Philistines. He agreed to go with them. He didn't come up with an excuse back then. You know, he didn't say, oh, my sciatica is acting up, whatever. You know, I mean, I'm sure they had some kind of valid excuse back in those days. (laughs) You know, I slept on a rock and I've got this thing here. And, you know, we don't see David even trying to get out of it earlier. He failed to trust in God. He'd given up in fear. He tried to make his own way. We see a David who's deeply self-sufficient here, deeply in trouble, and he's trapped between two really bad choices. You ever been there? You ever been trapped between two rotten choices? And, uh, and I'm not mentioning politics, by the way, so please put that out of your mind. On, on, on the one hand, if he joins Israel and and he fights against the Philistines, he's going to be giving up on the protection he's enjoyed, and he's going to be at the mercy of Saul, right? If he, if he joins them, the Israelites, then he has to wonder, okay, will Saul really accept me? I'm going to be his mercy. Can I really trust him at all? And I might actually end up having a fight on two fronts. He might end up having a fight against Saul and against the Philistines. On the other hand, if he fights against his brothers, he's almost certainly going to forfeit his God-given calling to be king. He is in deep kimchi. His future in general and his future as the king of Israel, it's, it's in jeopardy either way. And I think we're meant to see this passage and wonder, what in the world has David got himself into? How in the world is he going to get himself out of this? That's why the author is cutting back and forth. You know, They didn't have those, those ability to, to pan back and forth between scenes in a movie, and so he's doing it in writing. And he he pans back and forth, and we're meant to say, what in the world is he going to do? What's going to happen to David? What in the world is he doing marching up to Aphek? So now in this chapter, this huge Philistine force is streaming to Aphek as a staging ground for war with Israel, and I can, I can just imagine this scene, you know, trouble's brewing, and it's like something out of a, a movie, and, you know, bring up scenes of Braveheart when the, the armies are streaming in, and and these hundreds and thousands of men are streaming into the staging ground. And they're all streaming in. And David and his men, they kind of come in as the rear guard behind Achish. And, and they're obviously, they probably dressed differently. I doubt they wore kilts, but they were dressed differently than the Philistines. They probably used different weapons to some degree. You know, this motley group of ruffians, David's men were probably 
at best, um, ex-cons, and they were, they were people on the run, and they come riding in and walking in, looking like the army of William Wallace, and this, this ragtag group comes in at the back, and if suddenly in the text here, I think we're meant to see the drama, the leaders of the Philistines, they turn around, they see the back, they see this, this army, the 600 ragtag men that stand out, and they're saying, what are these Hebrews doing here? What in the world's going on? Are you crazy, Achish? And Achish says, it's, it's David, okay? It's, it's the servant of Saul. He's, he's been with me these, these days and years, and he's like, he's saying, you've known about him, you've heard about him. Haven't you ever heard of mercenaries? That's what he is. That's what his troops are. He's been with me all this time. He's never deserted me. He, he deserted Israel. He's been faithful to me. He's always fought for me. Think about it, it's remarkable. Achish, once the enemy of David, now he's says he finds no fault with David. He says David hasn't done anything objectionable to him as far as he knows. It doesn't matter, though. The commanders of the Philistines, they say, no way. We're having nothing to do with that. We hate that guy. By the way, did you forget who he is? And in their anger, though, we see something else happening. We see something else, really probably the major theme of this passage happening is It's that in the midst of David's folly, in the midst of his self-sufficiency, in the midst of his troubles, when he's gotten himself into this jam, we see God's mercy through the Philistines. You know, the the second idea is, but God brings mercy. Self-sufficiency, it leads to trouble. David's in trouble here. But what is the hope for David? He doesn't even know what's going on, but God brings mercy, and he brings it through the Philistines of all people. And what kind of mercy we see in the anger and hatred of the Philistines, it's, it's, it's really remarkable. They, they were angry, they objected, they said, you know, this is risky, how can you trust this Hebrew warrior band? And they said, you know, send the man back that he might return to the place where you've assigned to him, you know, way down there near the desert, away from us. He's not going to go into battle with us, they said, because he says, less in the battle he become an adversary to us. And Something interesting there in the Hebrew, that word adversary, it's Satan. It doesn't mean that David was Satan, but they're seriously hating David. You know, don't let David go down the battle with us, else he becomes Satan, an adversary to us. You know, how could they be certain that David wouldn't turn on them once he and his men were faced with the prospect of fighting their own countrymen? Is what they're telling Achish and You know, David could be like a fifth column in the Philistine ranks and oppose him. It wasn't militarily smart to potentially expose themselves to somebody on the rear guard who, while they were fighting the Israelites in the front, David could attack from the rear. And so they say, no, don't do that. Now, is that just just the Philistines, you think? Is Is that just them being militarily smart? I don't think so. I think that's God actually inciting them. How do we know that? Well, because consistently, the author of Samuel is showing us something about the character and nature of God all throughout the book of Samuel. Actually, that's the biblical authors are, are doing that consistently through events. Just recently finished up uh, teaching or a class on the book of Esther on Sunday mornings, um, thanks to Stan McCune, did a great job teaching that. And in that book, one of, the, one of the themes there is just seeing the sovereignty and the providence of God through him moving unbelievers, not his people, to protect and preserve his people. And we see that here. And they, they reminded Achish and said, you know, don't you remember David? There was this pop song that was really popular. 
with the Israelites a little while ago. The Hebrews used to sing it on their tilt-tops. Don't you remember that little ditty where they sang, you know, and they danced around. They said, David, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David is ten thousands. Do you remember who those thousands and ten thousands were? That was, that was the Philistines. That was us. Hello? And so they said, you know, are you nuts, basically? So Achah gives in to them. He calls David before him. Then notice something interesting. This is, it's not the main idea of the text, but it's very interesting, and it, it should draw your attention to it. In, in the text, Achish calls David to him, and he says that by the Lord, and those are all capitals, in the Old Testament when it does all capitals in the name of the Lord, it's actually the proper name of God, the holy name of God, the sacred name of God, Yahweh, and he doesn't swear on his mother's grave or the name of Philistine's idols. Uh, Achish swears on the name of the most high God, Yahweh, I was thinking, you know, David somehow, in the way he lived, or maybe related to his family or his men, he had an effect on Achish, and he, he must have at least shared about who his God was because Achish knew the name of God, and he swore, not by Philistine gods, but by a foreign god, by Yahweh. You know, he must have spoken, David must have spoken with his boss, Achish, and David backed that up with his own character and personal integrity, and at least in dealing with Achish, even when David was flawed and lied to Achish, at least something about David's behavior to Achish communicated the truth of the one true God that David served so that Achish swore by him. And I was thinking, boy, if that could be said of all Christians, that, 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 that our character and our integrity communicated something about the God we serve and, and that if we would speak of the God we serve to those who we work for, you know, what a testimony David was to this Philistine Lord and what a testimony be to the bosses or to the unbelieving world around us if we behaved in, in like manner with our dealings that those in authority could say that, you know, Christians are honest. They're always honest. We can't find anything wrong with them. We may not like them. We might hate them. But they're honest. We can't find anything wrong with them. And what a testimony to the power of a life transformed by God. Well, nevertheless, the other Philistines, they, they didn't know David. They didn't like him, and they have nothing to do with that. And they say, in response to Achish, they say, you know, no way, he's got to go back. And so David does something that's, that you want to tell him to just, you know, stop, David, stop. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. David, you're being an idiot here. And David, he's, he's bothered by this, whether he was genuinely offended or, or feigning disappointment. We don't know. We're left to wonder. We're left to at least question, did David really mean that? Could he have really failed that badly? And maybe so. And so David, he goes to Achish and he goes, but what have I done? You're sending me home. You're sending me packing. He says, what, what have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service till now that I might not go fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Now, he could have been feigning. There's two schools of thought. He could have been feigning that, or he could have really meant it. Intentionally, we don't see that, and I think we're, we're into the least question, what in the world's going on, David? What have you done here? And this point, you know, as a reader, I, I remember when I was reading, I'm thinking, wait a minute, David, just cool it back up already, all right? You're, you've got a way out here. Can't you see that this is your chance to get off the hook scot-free? You know, David, you can save face with Achish and, and, and still be on his good side, but more importantly, don't you realize you just got saved from a major blunder? 
If I were there, I, I probably would have wanted to pull David aside and say, hey, David, look, don't you understand? You've just been rescued by the Philistine lords. This is your way out. Just be quiet, maybe look a little disappointed, put on a sad face, and then, and then get the heck out of there. Don't wait until the morning. Go right away. You know, you know how to act already. We've seen that with you before with Achish, and you kind of you had some drool go down your beard, and you pretended to look nuts. Hey, pretend to look sad here, but say nothing and, and get out of here. But he doesn't do that. He, he's, he's a bonehead, <laughs> and he objects here. Now, maybe, maybe this was strategic, and I don't know, but the author never says that. Well, in fact, something else is happening here. David is, is having more mercy extended to him by Achish, and Achish says, David, I've, I've found you blameless. The third time, he tells, he tells David, I found no fault in you. I found you blameless, but here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to stay here tonight, but in the morning, before light even dawns, before dawn, get up really early, and as soon as you have daylight, get out of here. Well, what's happening? Achish isn't just saying, hey, go home. He's, he's actually saying, make it look like you're with us, and then early in the morning, sneak off. And, and, and he's extending even more mercy to David here so that the Philistines don't turn around and say, hey, you know what? We were thinking about it last night, and by the way, we're not going to let that guy go. We're going to kill him so that he's not a threat at all. And so Achish is probably aware of that. He sends him, he sends him home by, by first light. He says, depart as soon as you have light. And we see in verse 11 that David agrees, and he does just that. And he sets out with his men. He heads home early, and the Philistines march up to Jezreel. They head out to war with Israel. And, you know, once David thought about it, he must have been relieved. You ever been in a place where you've gotten yourself into trouble and... And somehow God has orchestrated it or worked it so that you mercifully no longer are in trouble. Um, boy, David must have been elated. He must have thought, wow, I've just, this is a great break. I didn't realize that. I've just been spared from either warring with the Philistines against the Israelites or warring against the Philistines and the Israelites. And, and what providential care that David would come out unscathed and and really, in this story, he comes out smelling like a rose. Well, a desert rose maybe, but he smells like a rose here. And he, he's, he's, he's not no blame with the Israelites, and he's got no blame with Achish. God has been merciful. He was the, the recipient of some serious undeserved mercy here, isn't he? Here's the funny thing, though. We don't see David seeking mercy in this passage. We don't, we don't see him crying out to God. We don't see the author explaining. And David cried out to the Lord, and God heard him. We don't hear David saying in the Psalms. And often, actually, there's, there's at least 20 Psalms that were written when David, in this whole period in 1 Samuel, that we, can, we know directly are related to different scenarios in 1 Samuel, where David, even with the time before with Achish and Gath, and, and he was saying, I cried out to the Lord and he delivered me. I, I pretended to be nuts, but it was ultimately God who delivered me, but I was crying out to God. We don't see that here. We don't see David crying out. We don't see David asking for mercy. And yet God extends mercy to him. But if you've been reading Samuel, you have to wonder what's going on. Why does David get mercy? David, the last couple chapters, he, he, he's been killing people and lying about it. He's not doing it for the honor of God. He's doing it for his own good, to protect himself and his people and to provide for them. 
You know, in chapter 27, you have these, these, the author is showing us some contrast. In chapter 27, David is seeking refuge with who? The Philistines, right? In chapter 28, Saul, he seeks refuge from God's rejection with a medium and a witch. They're both being self-sufficient. This chapter, David, ironically, is saved by the Philistines from Saul. Think of the irony there. He's saved by the Philistines from Saul and from his troubles. And in the final chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul is going to be destroyed, not saved. He's going to be destroyed by the Philistines. Why did God do that? Why did God have mercy on David and not Saul? I'm not saying he never had mercy on Saul, but why does Saul end his life that way? Why is Saul heading to a place of doom and destruction, death? He was self-sufficient. David was self-sufficient. What's up? His self-sufficiency led to trouble. So did David's. So why in the world does David receive mercy? You're meant to wonder that at least. If you're an astute reader, you have to be faced with that conflict between chapter 27, 28, and 29, and 30, and thinking, what's going on? They both are kind of failing here. And yet God uses unbelieving Philistines to bring mercy on David. You know, Saul, though, he's consistently revealed through his actions that he wasn't interested in truly loving God and truly following God and obeying God. It was all a pretense on the outside. So one of the major differences we're meant to see is is not that David was flawless or that Saul was flawed, because they're both flawed. But Saul, throughout the book of Samuel, demonstrates that he fears man more than God. While David, although he failed and wasn't perfect, he demonstrated and professed his devotion to God, even though he messed up seriously and sinned egregiously. And so you think about it, why does God show mercy to David? Because David was his Because David was a man after God's own heart. He ultimately wanted to follow the heart of God, ultimately wanted to trust in God, even though he failed. It doesn't mean that David was perfect. I think that's hope-giving for us, is that, you know, in my heart, deep down, I want to honor God. I want to love God. But there's these competing desires. There's this self-sufficiency that remains. It gets me into trouble a lot. I fail but I I can trust that ultimately because I I want to love God from my heart even when I don't. I can be sure that I am God's and David ultimately wanted to trust God even though he failed. That's part of why God calls him a man after his own heart. Does it mean that that David always did what was after God's heart? No. It doesn't mean that. It was not because he always did what was on God's heart but because he, he was after the heart of God. In his heart, he wanted to live for God, to love God, to to be faithful, even though he wasn't, even though he did fail and fall into self-sufficiency. And it revealed that that David was truly the Lord's. He belonged to God. You see the difference there? You see, even though self-sufficiency leads to trouble, God brings unrelenting mercy, but not to everybody the same way. He extended mercy to Saul, time after time, but 
After Saul rejected God, God rejected him. We don't see David rejecting God. We see David sinning against God. But God is bringing unrelenting mercy to David because he is his. And that's, that's really the final idea that we're gonna just look at is that for those who are his, he brings unrelenting mercy. And that may not seem fair, but throughout the book of Samuel, Saul had many times to receive God's mercy and respond and repent and believe. The difference with Saul and David over their, both of their lives is that David messed up just as bad or maybe even worse than Saul in some respects. But every time when he's confronted, he goes back and says, God, against you and you alone have I, have I sinned. And God, forgive me. I want to live for you no matter what the consequences are of my disobedience. Would you, would you please take me? He's saved in this chapter from his mistakes, even though he took matters in his own hands and it went badly. And he's saved here by the grace and mercy of God. That's a hope-giving thought for us. You ever been foolish? You ever been self-sufficient? I hope, well, I hope you know you have because um, all of us are self-sufficient and foolish. Saul's ultimately destroyed because he rejected God and trusted himself and his heart was far from God. David was ultimately saved here because he's trusting, even though not in this passage, in God, we see his, his heart revealed time and time again in the Psalms. Um, when, it, when David was in the desert, just a few chapters earlier in, in Judah, he was in the desert, and, and he says in Psalm 63, and we have it for you, in, in, in the midst of being pursued and has been 15 years or so on the run, David says, Psalm of David, when he's in the wilderness of Judah, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. David didn't seek him perfectly but he wanted to seek him. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. So my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food in my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the wash tonight. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Is that your prayer? We're not, God, God knows that we are dust, that we're, we're not faithful. But for all those who cry out to him, who call on him to be saved, you belong to him. You're his. What makes a difference for you and I and what made the difference for Saul and for David? It wasn't cunning or skill or, or David's sinlessness and Saul's sinfulness. No, the writer of this book is trying to show that's not what made the difference for David. It's not what made the difference for Saul. What makes the difference is who ultimately they were trusting in. You know, even like as Christians, like David, sometimes we grow weak and we faint. You ever, you ever fainted in your faith in God? Man, I, I have. I've had such fainting fits, if you will, that I thought, am I, am I even really a Christian? I believe it's all true, but I keep sinning and doing dumb things. So am I really a Christian? But God, I want to be. I want to be. And, and I think God at times does that and allows us to be in those places so that we realize that ultimately our trust doesn't even lie in our, our ability, our obedience, or even our ability to have faith. 
but ultimately relies in God and saying, God, you know, no matter what, I'm going to trust in you. And so even when we grow weak and take matters in our own hands and things go badly, this passage serves as, as hope for us. I've, I've been in the place worse than, or I haven't killed people, but in my heart, I've been in the place where I've deceived and manipulated people and lied when I was younger. And, you know, I was, I was lying to people in, in my school, trying to convince them that I was just like them and, and, and doing things like them. In my heart, I knew I was wrong. And then I was lying to people in church and convincing them that I was really holy and, and not like I was really acting when I was in school. And, and I was living a double life. There's hope for all of us in this passage as we see David. He was showed mercy. Even though he failed, his heart was for God, and, and God hold, held, held out mercy to him. He, God actually used evil people to bring mercy to his son. That's hope-giving for me, that God can use the most dire situations, circumstances to bring mercy to each and every one of us. I don't know about you, but I need mercy. I fail. I get myself in trouble all the time. Um, He holds out mercy to everybody here today. Are you in need of mercy? Have you gotten into trouble? Have you done stupid things? Have you lived a double life? Have Have you failed? He holds out mercy to mothers who've blown it and feel like they're failing and trying to make everything work and nothing seems to be going their way or maybe you feel like, oh gosh, I've gotten myself into this huge problem. What have I done? He holds out mercy to fathers. He holds out mercy to students and employees alike and those who have fainted and given into temptation to live for what people think about you. He holds out mercy for children who have forgotten the things of God and are pushing, trying to push things, push people away from them and pursuing their own way. He holds out mercy to you. Sometimes his mercy is surprising. He even comes in opposition from unbelievers. And, and, and that's actually the kindness of God. God was kind to David to make the Philistines hate him. You ever think about that? You know, maybe you're so wrapped up in worrying about what people think about you, and you couldn't imagine that God could actually use unbelievers hating you for your good to rescue you from yourself. And he does that here. He rescues David from himself and he holds out mercy. And God holds out mercy today. And he says, come to me, you who are weak, you who are weary, you who are fearing and fainting and self-sufficient, trust in me. I'll enable you, I'll strengthen you, I'll give you grace. And it's funny, in this passage, Achish says to the Lord's anointed three times that he's blameless, he finds no fault in him. I get that David, Achish probably believed that about David, but it wasn't true. It wasn't true. David wasn't blameless. We see this contrast. Achish thought he was blameless, but honestly, David wasn't. He was a lying murderer. And later we'll see that he was an adulterer. David wasn't such a great guy. That's hope-giving to me. But do you know who else was called blameless in Scripture three times, really, in, in it was Jesus. He goes before Pilate and Herod, and, and in scriptures, Jesus, he's wrongly accused, and he was declared blameless, and he truly was blameless. Oh, we, we couldn't hope, we can't hope in, in the anointed one, David, who, who was called blameless but really wasn't, and so we see that he, we need somebody who really is blameless. But we can hope in Jesus, who is blameless, 
the true anointed blameless one. In Luke 23, verse 16, Pilate, he has, he has questioned Jesus. And he says, you brought me this man as, as, as one who was misleading the people. He says, after examining him before you, behold, I didn't find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And then he tells him, neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I'll therefore punish him and release him. And then in, in John 18, 38, Pilate says again, I, I find no guilt in him. And then three times we see about Jesus, I find no guilt in him. And I, and I wonder as a Jew if you're reading this and thinking, oh, the first anointed one was called blameless and wasn't. But now this one who his people thought were full of blame is truly blameless. And, and, and our hope is, is in the mercy of God that comes through the Lord's anointed. The, the, the difference between Saul and David and the difference between us and those who don't believe, it's, it's not that we don't mess up and we're not guilty. This passage is showing us that. The difference between David and Saul is not that David didn't mess up or that he wasn't guilty. The difference between you and me and people who have not placed their faith in, in Jesus yet is not that we're not guilty. We're just as guilty of all manner of sins. By the way, don't think that somehow God chose you and called you because you were sinless and such a great catch. No, the difference is that we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ who was truly blameless for us and in whom was no fault and yet was punished for our fault and our blame he was made to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the, what, the righteousness of God in Christ and be recipients of what? His mercy. And it says because of that, and you, know what I, you know what I like is that um, somebody asked if we should have, um, um, if we should have you know, thorns up there and, and some nails on the cross. I'm like, no, we don't, we don't want anything on the cross because it's a reminder for us that the cross stands empty now. The cross stands empty now. We we look to the one who took our blame. We look to the one who took our sin. But then we look to the cross and we see he's not there. He's not there any longer. We have an empty cross to serve as a reminder that he fully bore our blame and he took it. And our blame hangs there no longer Our blame was completely removed and now Jesus stands blameless, resurrected and stands at the right hand of the throne of God completely blameless because God found his sacrifice on our behalf completely acceptable so no more sacrifice is needed. This is a reminder of what happened, not what's still happening. That Jesus has been resurrected, that now through his power, And he's enabling the fact that he is resurrected, he's alive. We have hope, we have faith in him who was blameless for us and now is able to make us blameless. And he sees us as blameless in his sight. He rose again on the third day. He lives, he makes intercessions for us. He he strengthens us, he leads us. And so whether you're a mother or father or child, we hope in our resurrected anointed one who extends mercy to us today. 
the prophet Jeremiah way, way back when in Lamentations, which is a really downer of a book, but it's really hope-giving to my soul. In Lamentations 3, the prophet Jeremiah, he's pouring out his heart, and he felt like all hope was lost. And I'll read his words, and we'll close with this. He says, so I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. But then he turns and he says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What does he do? He doesn't stay in the place where he's remembering his failures, remembering how self-sufficient he is, remembering he's had no hope. He says, I I have no hope, but I'm going to look up. I'm going to see, Lord, that you have Extended mercy that never comes to an end. He says, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'm not faithful, but you are faithful. Verse 24, he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Have you failed? Have you fallen? Have you been self-sufficient? Have you gotten yourself into trouble? Because of our hope in the blameless anointed one sacrificed for us, we can look up. And, and, and then in Hebrews it tells us because of that, because he stands now at the right-hand throne of the God, he's, he beckons us and welcomes us to come into the throne of grace. Put your trust in me and find what? Mercy and grace in our time of need. Mercy and grace. And that's what he offers to all of us. And so I'm grateful for David because he shows us that we can receive mercy and grace when we don't deserve it. Amen? Well, let the band go ahead and come up and we'll pray. Matt, pick some kind of song. No pressure exactly. (laughs) If you can't think of anything, great is my faithfulness. If you know that one, if you don't, do something else. Let's pray. God, thank you that we have examples of failure in Scripture. Thank you, God, that we have examples that show us the failure of of even those who have strategic roles in redemptive history that they failed. God, thank you that we can identify with failure. God, thank you that we can also look up and talk to our soul and say, look and see the mercy of God. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you that your mercies never come to an end. And I pray that we might look to you and find your mercy. We might come into your throne room, receive mercy and grace in our time of need. I pray that all of us would respond this morning likewise. And Lord, especially for moms who are so aware of the weaknesses and failures and feeling like they're not the mom that the family says they are, or maybe they're aware that they really are bad moms. Thank you that our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in your mercy and your great faithfulness, Lord. So in your name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and stand up. What are we singing? Lord, you are gracious. Perfect. Thank